Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're going to read more from Genesis 12. We've looked at the first half of Genesis 12 the last two weeks, and the first half of Genesis 12 is God's thesis statement for the rest of Scripture. Comes this guy named Abram. He says, "Here's the plan. I'm going to bless you for the sake of blessing the world." And what we learned is uh, the broadness of God's intention to do good to the world and to use His people to do it. But this week is an interesting uh, passage. It's the verses immediately after that. And in one sense, what we get is someone who comes off a very intense positive spiritual experience, who is fired up uh, in their faith. Um, who then makes these kinds of kind of destructive and faithless choices, and we kind of get to ask the question of how does God deal with that? So it's a fascinating passage. Um, uh, here we go. I'll read these verses and we'll talk about it. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, because the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say, you are my sister, so that it will go well with me because of you, and so that my life would be spared for your sake. So when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male and donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So all genders of camels and donkeys were included. I don't know why. Um, That's kind of interesting. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my own wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men's orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and with all that he had. That is the end of that story. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. This is a story um, where we see one of the champions of the Old Testament uh, behave in a horrible way. And um, I pray that you would teach us what you're supposed to learn from this, um, how we see ourselves in this, but also how we see you. Holy Spirit, we need you to teach us. Be with us now in your name we pray. Amen. Um. Okay, have you all had this experience to kind of dive in? When you have a plan, and the plan doesn't work, but you can't imagine doing it another way. And I remember a couple of years ago talk, talking to Charlie Troy, if any of you all remember him, he graduated a little bit ago, explaining to me, I don't know anything about CS, I don't understand how y'all's mind works, I couldn't, I don't, I don't know any, when you tell me about CS, I just smile and nod and pretend like, understand everything you're saying. And he told me about this project and what's the diff- is it 107 that's the hard one, the, the weed out course? It was 107. Wrote all these lines of code and then you run the code, whatever, right? You hit something and something goes to the code, yes? <laughs> and something's supposed to happen at the end. 
And this one assignment had tormented him all quarter long because he had this plan, he worked out this plan, and he hit enter over and over and over again, and it never worked. But this is the frustrating thing. Not only that it never worked, but also that he couldn't imagine doing it another way. He's like, I don't see how it can work another way. This is the way that's supposed to work, and yet it never does. Um, Here's why I bring that up. is because tonight what we're going to talk about is what is in Abram's heart that is also in ours. And it's this. This is his operating, uh, this is his fundamental mechanism for encountering the world, his fundamental allegiance, is self-interested pragmatism. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And this is the thing, first of all, about this idea of self-interested pragmatism, is that that's a belief system. Uh, A belief system is something that you trust for the purpose of orienting yourself and your decisions and your acting in the world. It's a posture and orientation. And what self-interested pragmatism is, is it's the belief that the key to happiness or the key to rest or the key to peace or the key to fullness is this, that the thing you must do is I must always do what's in my best interest. And in many ways, our secondary goal, right, is to find a way to get our self-interest to align with others, That's still an admirable secondary goal that we seek. But whenever other interest and self-interest come into contact, I have to choose me. And self-interested pragmatism is really, really useful. You can get really far with it. You can get into Stanford with it. You can find friends with it. You can get a spouse with it. You can become a person of significance and achievement and impact and means with it. It's very useful. But there are two problems with it with self-interested pragmatism. And the first problem is this. It's not just that it's the first source, it's actually that it is the only source of every bit of harm people have ever done to each other. It's not first among all the motivations or the reasons why anyone is hurting each other, anybody else. It's actually the only reason anyone has ever hurt anyone else. They were always acting and self-interested pragmatism. And we've all been on the offending end, and we've all been on the victim's end of self-interested pragmatism. That's the first problem. It's not just that it's the first among many motivations of why we hurt each other. It's actually the only reason we end up ever hurting each other. But this is the second problem, and this is the most frustrating one. This is why I said what I said about Charlie earlier. Is It seems like there's, it's impossible to figure out another way to live. If... If my fundamental, I, I want to be nice in my own self-interest. I want to like help other people be happy around me in my own self-interest. But if those two things ever come into contact with each other, I still ultimately always have to choose self, right? We see we see this in marriage really easily. I talked about this last week, right? You make me happy for a while, but now you don't, and now I'm radically unhappy with you, and I'm radically unhappy in my life with you. Well, at this point, I've got to choose me over you. Right? Every divorce and every broken family is at the altar of, ra- of self-interested pragmatism. Every single one. Right? How, but, but right, how else can you be married? Is there another way to be married other than seeking happiness from that person? We can't imagine it. Right? Hookup culture. I'm not going to go off on it right now. But that is, 
You make me happy right now through this act of severe intimacy, but let's separate it from any personal obligation because that's costly, that's hard, it's time-consuming, and it imposes on my pursuit of my personal goals. And even, there, there's the biblical view of sexuality, but even apart from that, the psychological community overwhelmingly with hard evidence and data is expressing incredible concern over how destructive this is. Right? But we can't figure out another way to be, so what we want to do is not listen to that data and continue our behavior. Right? Rush is going to happen next quarter. Not going where you think I'm going. (laughs) Rush is, you enter into it, I need a group of people to accept me. And I need, and, and okay, now you're telling me that to have this group of people to accept me, I have to agree to exclude others? That's fine. My need for acceptance is more important than the importance of including others. I'm on, and let's do it. Let's exclude some people because I need acceptance. Acceptance is too pressing. Right? We can go on and on and on, but what I'm trying to show you is that we all want to be good people. We all want to be nice people. We all want to be polite people that have good reputations. However, when those needs get bumped up against someone else's needs and their needs become costly and bring pain and suffering into our life, our fundamental operating posture is self-interest pragmatism and it's a belief. It's something that we place our faith in. It's a belief. For me to have the best, power, uh, the best possible life I can have, I need to use my power and resources to secure for myself the best and most rewarding circumstances and validations. That's a belief. It's a belief statement. Sometimes that belief will lead me to a life that also helps others. I want to volunteer. I want to create something uh, that helps people. I want to become wealthy and give. But when my happiness and security is infringed upon, this belief also leads me to gossip and to reject and to isolate and to abuse and to assault and to lie and manipulate and to hate and to judge. It is the source of all of those actions, all of those emotions. But it's a belief, it's a trust in self. And here's the thing is, this is the most frustrating aspect of it. Is once you encounter that it's the deepest thing in your heart, we can't imagine actually standing in the mirror at the beginning of the day and with really real authenticity and deep authenticity saying, today, my day is not for me. We want to believe that self-interested pragmatism is just a tool, right? It doesn't have any moral value one way or the other, and what everybody needs to learn is how to use it the right way. But it's not a tool. It's a fundamental heart posture. It's an allegiance. It's a faith statement. My control and my happiness and success is my ultimate, underneath it all, when push comes to shove, allegiance. And if I ever have to choose between myself and others, between your future and mine, between your happiness and mine, between your advancement and mine, between your life and mine, I choose me. That's who Abram is. And what we're going to look at is actually look at how God deals with that. And kind of three stages of the story. First of all, it gets exposed, it gets played out, and then God responds to it. So it gets exposed first. How does it get exposed? Just like it gets exposed in all of us, an impossible situation. A situation arises in which Abram has to choose between his own interest and the interests of people around him, especially the people closest to him, right? His wife. Presumably one of the people that he's probably always claimed to care about the most. 
So here is Abram. He's just had this amazing spiritual experience with God. Made a huge decision trusting God's Word. Taking a big leap of faith. He actually, in, earlier in Genesis 12, God said, Go, I'm going to take you to this new land. I'm going to bless the world through you. And He did it. He packed up His household and left. But this is what happens. With all that zeal and with all that assurance, He encounters circumstances that are bigger than He anticipated. And He can't see how He's going to get through these circumstances faithfully and live. Right? We've been there. I don't know if I trust God in this circumstance if I'm going to be okay. And I think I see a better way forward for myself. And I realize it's going to have some negative impact on others. Uh, I realize I'm going to have to like fudge my integrity and my character a little bit. But this way forward is the only way I can see forward. That's where Abram is. The circumstance was bigger than he ever anticipated it. It's a set of circumstances that makes it feel like things are beyond God's control and beyond His promises, like God was surprised by it. So there was famine in the land. And, and Abram's thinking, like, how do I survive this moment? They go to Egypt, the Nile River's there. Egypt is always kind of more famine-proof than anywhere else in the Middle East. But he makes his plan to take care of his family, and then he realizes he's going to have trouble. We don't get a lot of verses on this. The text doesn't give us a lot of detail, but he's concerned about the Egyptians and their relationship with his wife. And so he's like, listen, if we're going to survive this, I basically have to give you as a trophy wife to them. That's how things are gonna, that's how I'm gonna live, that's how we're gonna survive this. Tell them you're my sister, which is here's the here's the interesting thing about that. It's actually half true. Uh, she is his half-sister. You find that out later in Genesis when you get their genealogy. So it's an it's a convenient partial truth. So he doesn't have to feel like he's lying, right? We all know how to do that. We all know how to tell the truth but still lie with it. Uh, that's what he does. He's like, Pharaoh's going to take you into the house. As a trophy wife, I'll survive. And so all of God's promises will still be kind of going. Like, we're not... Things aren't going to end for us. So he's faced with these horrible circumstances, and there's two paths. Protect the self, even if it means some other people get hurt. Because he can't can even show his wife how this is for the greater good. Or trust God. Put the self on the line trusting God, taking care of his wife instead of demeaning, using her as a pawn in his pragmatic plan for self-preservation and self-interest. Here's the thing. This is the mo- You'll hear me talk about this in RUF often. The command given in the Bible more than any other command is actually not love God, it's not love others, it's not worship God alone. Those are all important commands, they're given several times. The command given more often than any other command in Scripture is this, do not fear. And the reason why is because the opposite of faith is fear. The reason why is because the the two postures to go through life is to either trust God or to trust self. And when you place your trust in something that is contingent and finite and limited and corruptible, that's us. The result is fear. It's insecurity. And the course of action is always determined by pragmatic self-interest. So either he trusts that God is bigger than his circumstances and that God keeps his promises, or fear takes over in the place of faith. And fear leads Abram to take matters into his own hands, regardless of what it does to others, and seek self-preservation and self-interest. What does that look like in our life? How does it get exposed in our life? This is, our hearts are being exposed to ourselves all the time. 
to such a degree that I think we just don't want to see it. So we grow hard. We don't actually don't want to see ourselves. We've all been in the situation where you have to choose between the person who needs you but can't advance you socially and the person you've always wanted to want you. This happens to everybody at some point multiple weekends in college, right? Stick with a friend, stick up for a friend, confront a friend, pursue a friend. Those are all costly things. Those are all things that will personally cost you and can get in the way of your other social goals. Right? Professionally, if this hasn't happened to you already, this will. When you go to work, the professional world is going to be full of choices between the good and the expedient. Between the virtuous and the expedient. Do I advance my career by maneuvering and politicking and gossiping and supporting things that I don't believe in? Partaking in business practices that require deception and may harm others? Those situations are coming at you so fast, so soon. If they haven't already. We're exposed financially, right? I don't have money to help. What that means, it almost never means I have no money. It almost always means I have a plan for the things I want with my money and you're not in them. Right? For, for me personally, pragmatic self-interest comes mostly in the form of disengaging. Sounds like helping, sounds like getting involved, listening and working that out. It sounds complicated. So I'm going to sit this one out. Right? If I stand by and don't do anything, if I stand by and I'm not the one doing anything wrong, like plenty of philosophers and public speakers and Christian pastors have said things, Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Doing nothing is self-interest. Right? But what, here's what we hope for. I'll move to the next point after this. This is what we're all aiming for and conniving for, Christian or not, wherever you find yourself, is what we really want to find is a way to not be a terrible person but still be a self-interested person. That's our game plan, let's be honest. I want to not be terrible because being a terrible person is horrible, right? But I do want to be self-interested. And so what I want is my success and my self-interest to not overtly be hurtful to anyone. And if it's not kind of overtly hurtful to anyone, and really what we mean is if I don't feel bad about the fact that maybe it hurts some people, then that's pretty good. And Jesus actually speaks directly to the Pharisees, to religious people on this one, when he says, hey, you're really good at the technicalities of being a nice person. You tithe, you give money to the church on like... He, he actually made fun of them. He's like, you tithe the things in your kitchen. And you think, I'm a really good person because I give money to church. I, I, I don't just tithe what's in my bank account. I, like, I tithe the things in my kitchen. And he said, but do you love your parents? And if not, if, if you're doing all these good things, but you're a judgmental, self-righteous, self-interested person, it's worthless. God never actually separates who we are with what we do. That's what we want to do. We're like, well, I do nice things and then okay that I'm self-interested. And the reality is, this is what no... Right? We, we always want to ignore all the realities about how self-interest pragmatism plays out. The reality is, who you are 
is going to impact the people around you far more than what you do. So if you can perform the actions of a nice person, but you're not seeking virtue and character as a friend, as a mother, as a daughter, as a husband, as a parent, as a child, there are people who've done great things, right, on a social and a global and a national scale in the professional work in their lives and have destroyed their families and terrible to the people closest to them. Being a selfish person who does good things is actually what the New York Times columnist David Brooks says, he calls it the service patch. It's trying to buy off your character deficiency with good works. And God cares about both who you are and what you do. And it's just as destructive, if not more so, to justify selfishness by dressing it with some good works that the general public will applaud. Wholeness comes when who you are on the inside and what you do on the outside are in harmony. So the first question I would urge you is, can you recognize and grieve that our fundamental drive is self-interested pragmatism? And that in some ways, the most dangerous place to be is to be really effective at being nice and being self-interested. Because then you can convince yourself that you never have to deal with what's in your heart. But here's what's going to happen to you if it hasn't already, is at some point circumstances are going to reveal that heart to us. There's going to be a moment where you're going to have to choose between loving someone difficult and it being deeply costly to you, and you choosing your own personal happiness and advancement. My guess is those situations come more often than we know. So it gets exposed, and then it plays out in this passage. What happens next in the story? Um... We all know what discipline is. So, for those of you who don't know, I have four daughters. Um, two 12-year-olds and two 10-year-olds. Both sets are identical twins. It is insane, as insane as you can imagine it would be. Uh, and you should come eat dinner with us on Thursday nights because it's really fun and really funny. Um, so, we're learning for, for a decade now. We've been trying to figure out discipline. But here's what discipline is. Discipline is when a loving parent sees a small child doing something harmful, that parent intervenes with discipline. And this is what it is, right? It's a scold, it's a go to your room, it's a no dessert, or this is the worst thing you can do to a child. No more screens, right? Um, (laughs) When we take away screen time, it's like, it's it's nasty. But here's what's happening in in an episode of discipline. Just kind of break it down, what's going on. A parent brings a small discomfort into a child's life in order to spare them a greater discomfort later. That's the fundamental principle of discipline. A parent brings a little discomfort into a life now to spare them greater discomfort later. That's actually what God is doing right here. He's bringing... He afflicts Pharaoh and his household. He brings short-term, small unpleasantness as an advertisement to say, hey, this, is not, this doesn't feel fun now, but it's actually very small compared to the not fun feeling that comes if you continue to go through life this way. Another parenting example. Everyone was born with the instinct to hit people that take stuff. You don't believe me? Ask your parents. I promise you. 
when you have children, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. He used to, I was trying to believe like people are fundamentally good. Then you had a child and you realize everyone was born with the instinct. If you take my stuff, I will physically strike you. <laughs> Actually, the scariest thing that our children did, and I feel like this is the like purest physical expression of malice is we had one that would bite you on the face. And there's something like pure about that kind of malice because it's like I will take the the thing that identifies you more than anything else your face and I will devour it. Like that's malice. I, I don't know how you can more purely express malice but here's alright. That's not in the notes. It's just still working through it. But in the situation where your child strikes another child or another friend because you took or they took or their other sibling took a Lego, what you will do is you will rightly respond, it is not okay for you to express yourself that way in this situation. Your inner disposition and your outward actions are wrong. And I won't permit you to keep doing it and I won't be loving you because if I let you leave this moment right now thinking it's always okay to bring physical violence to someone when they take their Legos, then life will implode on you. So what you do is you bring a little unpleasantness in their life now to spare them destruction later, right? Everyone does this. So in love, you bring a little unpleasantness now to prevent massive unpleasantness later. That's what God's doing here. In love, He's bringing an affliction to spare them the greater affliction that comes if you go through life thinking, yes, go through life treating women as objects, seeking self-preservation at the expense of others, operating self pragmatic self-interest, treating relationships as transactional, seeking your own well-being at the expense of others because you are afraid. And here's what's fascinating about this passage among others. God deals with it slightly differently in different places. But in this passage... He doesn't afflict Abram directly. He afflicts the people around him. And the text doesn't comment, but I'm I'm sure it's safe to assume their marriage is in pieces at this moment. Right? But additionally, God brings affliction on the people around him. And you know what? That's usually the case with pragmatic self-interest, right? Is that when we operate in it, we feel okay about our circumstances and the people are getting hurt and not ourselves but others. And that's the heart of much of just the uproar in our culture right now. Right? If you act in pragmatic self-interest, you'll do well, but it'll destroy others. And the irony is that this is a problem of both the left and the right because this is the problem of the human heart. The left rightly consider, uh, criticizes the right, saying, y'all are operating in self-interest. You're ignoring the needs of the poor, of the people who don't have health care, of the people who are outcasts. And the right is rightly criticizing the left. You're ignoring the needs of the unborn and the unprotected. What I'm trying to show you is, do you see this is not an ideological problem? Like, hey, you need, we, we need to all settle on the left or we all need to settle on the right. It's a universal problem of the human heart. We act in self-interest and it always ends up harming others. We don't need one of these two ideologies to win. We need to become new types of people. So what does God do next? Really, we should have read 
Genesis 13 because, as well, because what happens in Genesis 13 is you see that Abram is actually transformed by this encounter. In Genesis 13, he is uh, faced with a similar situation in which he has to choose between his interest and his family's self-interest and his nephew's self-interest. And he chooses for his nephew. And here's why. How does... How does Abram begin to be transformed by this? Because here's what's not shocking. It's not shocking that the world spirals out of control when we all live by self-interested pragmatism. We should always expect conflict, violence, dissolution, frustration, divorce, broken society when we're all operating out of self-interested pragmatism. What's shocking is how God responds. Because here's our real question. Right, going back to the very beginning, is there another way to be? Because it's actually, once you really wrestle with your fundamental allegiances, it's hard to imagine, is it really possible to be completely another way? Can I really afford to change? Is it foolish for me to want to change or to try to change? Have you encountered that question before? I, you know, I could trust God on this, but I actually can't see how I would still get what I want. I'll try to be a good person, but at the end of the day, if I can't see how trust and obeying Him is going to grant me the tomorrow I want and that I feel that I need, then I know what I have to do. My fallback plan is still me. I'll trust my plan over His. I'll trust my power, not His, to get what I need. And I know that when... Do you know that when easy obedience gets stripped away, right? There's some easy ways to kind of vaguely be nice christian people. And then following Jesus gets hard and potentially costly. And know that my ultimate allegiance is my own safety and my own peace and my own prosperity. We know the situation. Everybody knows the situation. It's the time when a friend who values you dearly needs you and you have work piled up. Right? Do you deny the self for the sake of the other or do you deny the other for the sake of self? Right? Do we tell the truth or do we tell a lie because it serves my self-interest? Do we be a fake version of me that pleases the social situation or do you be a person of conviction? Do you fight with someone because you care? Or do you let them choose poorly because the fight would be too costly? Do you forgive or do you nurse bitterness? Do you listen or do you make an excuse to exit the conversation? Do you move toward people or away? Do you get them home safely or do you take advantage of the situation? These things, they just keep coming. Do you pursue the pain of chastity or do you honor marriage? And do you choose the selflessness of a commitment to true intimacy? Do you tell people about Jesus or do you talk about the patriots? Life is going to continue... It's the Patriots. That's the answer for that one. No. Okay, show her. No. Life is going to continue to present more and more complicated versions of that conundrum to us. And the question is not, how do I manage the situation and get what I want but still come across as a nice person? You know what that is? That's pragmatic self-interest. The question is this. This is the question I want you to ask. How do I no longer let fear and self-interest rule me? And only the gospel has the resources for changing this. There are two... In this passage, when you read the story, there's two obvious options. 
right? Condemn Abram or give him a pass because it's understandable. Say, Abram, this is out of line. This is totally inappropriate. You forfeited your role in God's plan. You forfeited God's presence in your life. It's totally inappropriate. Condemnation. The other one is, that was a hard situation. I totally understand. Don't worry about it. Right? Those are our two options. You're out or listen. Everybody's got to make concessions. It's totally understandable. You're being pragmatic. And this is the irony is God never chooses neither. And neither one of those can actually shape us into the kind of counterintuitive person and community that God intends us to be. Right? If we condemn, if the approach is condemnation, then who can stand at the end of the day? Nobody can. We don't even meet our own standards. We all know this, right? Self-loathing. We all feel it. We all know it. You know what self-loathing is? Not meeting your own standards. How much more do we not meet the standards of God's holiness? So once we start condemning, everybody gets thrown under the bus. Right? And condemning offers no one the chance for transformation. It can't change anything. On the other hand, if you give a free pass, hey, listen... Is understandable. Then who do we condemn? At some point, we have to draw a line in the sand and say, no, 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 these actions are not okay. Giving people a free pass does not, also can't change people because it offers no challenge to live differently. It's like, hey, it's understandable. Run with that. Neither one of those approaches can transform us, but what God does equally brings justice and grace. He clearly communicates, this is the wrong way through the plagues. This is not okay. He never gives permission to a hurtful, self-interested pragmatism. And yet, he still blesses Abram. Abram walks out with more than he had before he came in. How does God uphold justice and grace at the same time? How can He be good to His people and keep His promise of blessing and at the same time God hate the self-interested pragmatism that's destroying us and that's in us? And the, the manner in which He does it is the cross. It is the climax of His blessing. And the cross are the shadows of both justice and grace that are projected back through the Old Testament. Jesus in the New Testament actually says... He explains the Old Testament and says, don't you see, it was always about me. Because the, pl- the cross is the place where God offers Himself in love for us. The people who actually seek ourselves in selfishness. The cross is the place where what God does is He pours out all His feelings on how upset He is that we've brought suffering and pain and death into this world. And we are all co-conspirators in everything that's broken. And it's always true that the people who are least convinced that they are the bad people are the people that do the most bad. And God has to oppose the selfishness that brings so much pain and suffering in the world. But at the cross, it's also His mercy and His grace that Jesus comes. The way the Bible, one of the phrases it uses to summarize the way God feels about every bad thing we do and every bad thing in our heart, His feeling toward that is called a cup of wrath. And Jesus, in His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, says, I don't want that cup. Jesus is even afraid of what selflessness entails. So if you feel scared about selflessness as a posture in life, know this, your Savior was even afraid of it. It is terrifying. It is scary. But He still chooses selflessness for our sakes, and He drinks the cup at 
the cross for our sakes. And it is only when you experience the love of the cross in that manner that God upholds the law and His desire for you to be a new and different kind of person who loves others and loves God more than yourself. And at the same time, He upholds grace. It's only when you have that experience that you can begin to imagine the possibility of loving the way you've been loved. That you can actually begin to consciously reject the rule of pragmatic self-interest and pursue sacrificial service, bearing each other's burdens, bearing with and forgiving and serving and loving and setting aside self for the sake of others. We think the key to life is pursuing our dreams. And the reason we're killing each other is because we're all getting in the way of each other's dreams. We want a world where my personalized dreams and your personalized dreams never interfere. But this is the problem. Our life is full of nightmares. And Jesus' solution is to walk into our nightmare. To leave His pleasant place and to walk into our nightmare and bear burdens for us. Jesus did the exact opposite. He left His dream to enter our nightmare, and that is the counterintuitive gospel love that you're called to. Resting in your identity. I am loved by God. My shame is taken away at the cross. My guilt is taken away at the cross. I'm sealed for the resurrection so that you can walk out tonight with the mind, not with the mindset, achieve my dreams, focus on me, and excise anyone who impedes what's best for me. But you can walk out approaching life and instead thinking, where is love needed for the sake of others? You can walk away from assert yourself, defend yourself, protect yourself, seek yourself, express yourself, and you, begin to, you can begin to imagine what it looks like to set yourself aside because your king set himself aside for you. We're... I think it's worth being really, really confused as to why even though we have improved our circumstances drastically in this culture, there have never been more opportunity and more wealth available to more people than in this country at this time. And we are deeply hurting, hurtful, angry, fearful people. And the reason why is because our plan and our trust was in our own self-interested pragmatism. I need to express myself and protect myself and seek my own interest. Instead of trusting in the promises and the love of God at the cross, instead of being changed by the cross, things can be different. You can be a different person. That is possible. But this is the only way that you can begin to have the strength and the hope and entertain the possibility of selfless love instead of fear and self-protection. It has come to the cross And see that that is exactly what Jesus did for you. He gave himself up in love for you. So you can do it. It's possible. Let's pray.